Hello everyone and welcome back to the Say La Vie podcast. Episode 8 is where we're at. Today we have a super interesting conversation with a local legend, Guy Rogers. And I'm sure all of you guys are excited to get into this conversation and I am too. But before we start, I want to start and ask you one question. Would you be proud to identify as a Quebecer? Now, I want you to think about the answers to this question. And before we jump into this episode, think about it. Really give it some thought. And then let's reflect at the end of the episode to see if your mind's changed just a bit. I know you're probably looking at the timestamp for this episode and wondering why it's so long. Well, I'll be honest. This conversation with Guy was just so interesting that I couldn't pull myself to cut any of it out. But that's okay, because this idea of defining an identity to Quebec or Finding out what that really looks like isn't a short conversation to have. So I'm going to jump right into this episode to not waste any more time. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode and the little uncut dynamic twist it takes. And let's just jump right into this episode. Awesome. You lead, I will follow, Macduff. Okay. So wonderful. Welcome back to the Say La Vie podcast today. We are with Guy Rogers with a D, Deluxe Rogers. Let's go. Give it, a, Take it away. Introduce yourself to the people and let the world know who you Hello, are. Hello, everybody. Anybody who's a friend of Sam's is a friend of mine, so it's good to meet you all. Uh, I was for many years the executive director of the English Language Arts Network. In fact, I was the founding executive director. Uh, more recently, I've been working as, as a producer, director of a series of uh, videos about identity and belonging in the English-speaking community called Waves of Change. And that's one of the things that we're going to be talking about today. Exactly. Waves of Change is a wonderful project. And I'll let Guy explain a bit about that. But before we get started, I want everybody to go check that project out. As always, all these links are going to be in the description and in the resource list on our website. So Guy, talk to us about Waves of Change. Talk to us about some of the goals of that project. Well, the, uh, the project was funded by and initiated by the uh, relatively new Secretariat for Relations with English-speaking Quebecers. They've been around now for four or five years. And one of the first things they did was speak to uh, a broad cross-section of English speakers about their interests, about their priorities. And one of the things that came out of that research, to nobody's surprise, was that Anglos have a sort of ambiguous sense of belonging in Quebec, and they have a, a conflicted sense of identity. You know, there's this traditional image of the Anglo villain. Um, and so that's been imposed upon a lot of people. And therefore, the Secretariat decided that they wanted to address the issue of identity and belonging. So they funded six um, organizations, six community organizations, to create projects. One of those uh, groups was Y for Y, of course. So Elan's project um, was initially going to be about art, because Elan is an artist network. And my first idea was to look at books, films, songs, plays uh, that look into life in Quebec. And there's a ton of them. But as I started thinking about it in terms of how it would actually work, I mean, how many people are going to go out and read 10 novels, mm -hmm. uh, go and pick up some fairly obscure plays? It, it just seemed to be a, a difficult and slightly unnatural way to connect with people, to engage in a dialogue with the larger community. So then we started thinking about speaking to people directly about their own sense of identity and belonging. Mm -hmm. You know. Uh, logical enough thing, but then there's something like a million English speakers in Quebec. <clears throat> now, we didn't have the budget or the resources or the time to go out and interview a million people. And once you start thinking about it in terms of representation, who are you going to talk to? Um, are you going to do it based upon professions, neighborhoods, demographics? You know, how do you... So we spent a lot of time brainstorming, talking, thinking, brainstorming. And it seemed like an impossible challenge, but then we came across the idea of waves of immigration. Um, the premise being that the Nouvelle France existed, the British, the English speakers arrived, and that waves of immigration have been arriving ever since. And anybody in the English speaking community can tell you exactly when their family, you know, maybe multiple branches of the family, grandparents, great-grandparents, arrived in Quebec, where they came from, uh, probably what, they, what their experience was in the early days. So this, this took off as being really, a really tangible way of connecting with, with everybody who's part of the English-speaking community. 
And uh, since we've produced the videos and have them out there, it, it's had exactly that effect. You know, people will say, well, my family didn't arrive from those exact communities and we didn't arrive speaking those exact languages, but we arrived at that same period of time. It was the same moment in, in social and uh, political history and they had pretty much the same experience. So I can identify with that, you know, to, to a very large extent. And that was exactly the point, to, to make, to um, create a, a forum for English speakers to say, yes, that's my story, but also to talk about aspects of the English-speaking community that are either never talked about or are buried under all kinds of myths that are either totally false or were only true like generations ago. Mm -hmm. And that's actually really interesting that you broke this down uh, on an identity basis because in psychology, one of the things that we learn is that a lot different cultures experience this idea of identity in different ways. So there's individualistic and then there is um, holistic communities that, that see themselves based on the people around them as opposed to individualistic. And here in Canada, we're more of an individualistic... Uh, well, North America. In North general, America. You know, sort of the European, North American tradition. Precisely. Yeah. And uh, we see ourselves as our accomplishments. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really cool way of, of seeing different patterns in the different conversations that you had. Did you see different patterns based on these different communities just within... Oh, we, we saw many patterns. I mean, as in a work of great fiction, you know, you get to the end and something totally surprising happens. You go, oh, wow. But then you think back and you go, well, no, that makes perfect sense. You know, I hadn't realized it was coming, but given all of the factors leading up to the ending, it makes perfect sense. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that is the, probably the description of, of a great piece of fiction. Mm -hmm. And what we found were surprising in some cases, but of course, looking back, things were obvious. So, you know, we, we knew we were dealing with some ancient stereotypes, you know, the Anglo boss, the, the you know, Golden Square Mile, Anglos, the elite. Uh, I mean, if, if you were to stand out on, Saint, uh, on Sherbrooke Street here, and asked most of the people passing by, you know, what, how would you characterize the English speakers of Quebec? Almost everybody would come up with WASP, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. That, that's been the tradition. Mm -hmm. We didn't find the, the WASP. I mean, <laughs> what we found, I mean, obviously we found some white people, but, but as we showed in the first episode, you know, there's a black community that goes way back to, mm -hmm. you know, Nouvelle France, the earliest period of, of uh, British arrival and has been prominent all through very strong Jewish community going back to the 1880s, Chinese community going back to the 1880s, but the English-speaking community that currently lives in Quebec, what we found was most of them feel, feel that they're Celtic, not Anglo-Saxon, so they, they, they relate more strongly to Ireland or to Scotland, and most of the people we met had Catholic parents or grandparents, not Protestants. Um, so, you know, I did a bit of subsequent research, and it seems that Given all of the tensions and the trauma of the um, period between 1970 and 1995, it's quite probable that most of the people who left were uh, more of, a, of, a, of an English, British stock, and Protestant. So that was a surprise. You know, we thought we'd have no trouble having wasps, but mm -hmm. really there are very few of them around, and certainly that go way back in time. That, that term wasp was something I hadn't even heard before. It, it seems like um, it would be interesting to see if some of these, you know, some of this culture, some of this history could be integrated into the education system. Because I feel like there was a lot of, of just small, minute things um, that I was learning just in doing research for these episodes, but also through watching episodes of The Waves of Change, I'm realizing that there was a lot of stuff that I wish I had learned in history sure. or in different classes like that. Well, well, I have two comments to make about that. One is that... Um I have some friends who are looking how to integrate waves of change into the um, social studies curriculum because there are quite a few educators who, say, who feel exactly the same way, that these are a very uh, personable, accessible way to uh, engage with history and, uh, and the people who are there, and it would probably encourage young people to go and talk to their parents and their grandparents and to sort of tap into their own personal history. The other point, the other big myth that came across is that you know the, the, all of the Anglos are British and their roots go back to 1760. You know, they, they sort of marched in with the British Army and they've been <laughs> playing the boss role ever since. Well, what we found, and this I kind of knew, but, but didn't understand it as fully prior to doing the research and creating the videos, was that during the post-war era, there was massive immigration from Europe and other parts of the world that were war-torn and, uh, and were struggling to rebuild their economies and their, and their societies. And... Um, they were not 
English speakers or French speakers. You know, they, were, they, they spoke German, they spoke Yiddish, they spoke Polish, whatever. And at that time, and again, this is something that a lot of people have forgotten. At that time, and for most of the history of Quebec, the school systems were not English and French. They were Catholic and Protestant, which was kind of a shorthand for English and French because in general, Francophones were Catholic, although there were certainly Huguenots. I mean, there's a, there are a number of very famous Huguenots in the, in the history of, of Nouvelle France. And in general, the English speakers from Britain were Protestant, but there were exceptions, of course, in the Irish. At least the people, the Irish from the south were mostly Catholics, but in the north of Ireland was mostly Protestant. So there are exceptions to all of these rules. But the notion that but the, the um, school systems were divided into Protestant and Catholic. So what happens when people arrive here who are neither Protestant nor Catholic, namely Jewish? Well, what we found, and we already knew this, but it's not well documented. It's not well documented, uh, not discussed very much, but um, the, uh, the Jewish people who arrived in Quebec after the war were rejected from the Catholic system. Um, I wouldn't, I, perhaps the term for what happened with the English system was not so much welcomed. I mean, I, I don't think that they felt welcomed by the, by the English speakers, but they were accepted into the Protestant system. And in some cases, they, they constituted like almost 100% of the school. I mean, Baron Bing, Ultramont High School, you know, they were, they were almost entirely Jewish or there were some Greeks. Uh, so these people, a lot of people were pushed into the English system not because they wanted to speak English, not because they wanted to uh, become part of the English-speaking community, uh, but because they were not accepted into the Quebec Catholic system. Now, I've read many books on history. I've read dozens of books on history, and every single book that I've ever read, even when written by the most um, sort of sympathetic federalist type, says that the allophones chose to associate with the, uh, the language of business. Well. You know, if you watched episode two, that, that was not the lived experience. The, the other big mystery to me over the years has been the Italians. Um, most, of my, most of the Italians my age uh, went to English schools. Now, that surprises me, because they were Catholics. You know, they were Roman Catholics. And uh, what happened, as far as, as far as we can reconstruct the story, is that the Italians who arrived prior to the Second World War, they were few in number, they mostly came from relatively affluent uh, families. They were welcomed into the Catholic schools. But uh, after the Second World War, large numbers of Italians started arriving. And you know they, they came from all kinds of different political associations and classes. And uh, the Catholic system started shutting its door to them. So Italians, they were not Protestant, but there was a small Catholic section within the English school commissions that had been created for the, uh, for the Irish. So the Italians started being educated in the English Catholic system. And then that's why they um, spoke English. Mm -hmm. So you get all of these communities who were sort of pushed into the English-speaking community. And as I said earlier, you know, they were more or less welcomed. You know, they were part of the system, but you know, there were barriers and there were discriminations and you know, there, there were it wasn't like they were welcomed with big open arms and you know to 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 kiss you know it was a it was more complex than that but then you get to the 1995 referendum um which was lost by a handful of votes i mean it it was it was it was bitterly contested it was decided by a handful of votes and so then you, you have, there are two 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 observations to draw from that the first is that had the um the sovereigntists understood the allophones better recognized that they'd been pushed into the English system because the Catholic system rejected them, made some sort of an outreach, made them feel safe and welcome, a handful of votes would have changed that referendum decision. It would have changed the, the uh, you know, there's, there's a lesson to be learned there about, you know, attracting flies with, with sugar rather than <laughs> vinegar. And, and then Perizot, you know, added insult to injury by getting up on the night of the referendum and saying, on a cause la vote ethnique et l'argent. And so he, then he's blaming this eth these ethnic communities for voting to sort of preserve the status quo, which had made them feel you know, relatively welcomed and safe. Whereas, as you know, people discuss in the, uh, in the second episode, that you know, they were being threatened with having their jobs taken away from them and their houses taken away from them if Quebec became a separate country. So why would they vote for it? So you know, these are important historical lessons. You know, these, these are not 
academic moments of history. You know, these affect people's lives and they continue to affect how we see one another to this day and, and, and some of the, the stereotypes and myths. So, you know, what could be worse than sort of being a, a Polish Jew arriving in, in this place, being lumped into the English system, forced to speak English, being sort of rejected by English and French and Catholics and Protestants, and then being blamed <laughs> for the loss of a referendum. I mean, it's craziness. It's, it's absolutely mind-blowing because if you think about that, that, that answers our question right here. That is a perfect premise to discuss these ideas of identity and belonging because for so many people that becomes their identity. And one of the big points of, uh, of conversation we'd be having in every episode of the podcast is this idea of a mosaic culture and this idea that the mosaic keeps growing in, in segments of the mosaic, but the fact that we cannot define one culture, one community, one identity to what Quebec is. The, the whole purpose, the whole mosaic that Quebec is, is all of our identities put together. But it seems like without these stories, without these conversations, without the perspectives of what the lived experiences were back then, we can't continue to properly understand what our mosaic looks like today. Absolutely. And that's why we did five waves of immigration, because as we get closer to the present, we have a number of people from India, from Pakistan, you know, because they came here speaking English. That was their, their, their if, if not their first language or their first official language spoken in Canada. So they, they more naturally associated with the English speaking community. But, you know, they, they, they don't have any allegiance to Britain. You know, one guy said, you know, when I took the oath of allegiance, we, we fought against the Queen, you know, here, and here I am having to swear allegiance to the Queen. I com felt completely weird about that. So, you know, most of the people, as you get into episodes, four and five are going, you know, this is a, a colonial battle that's been going on for hundreds of years. I mean, technically it started at the Battle of Hastings in 1066 when the French invaded Britain. I mean, can't we get beyond that? And so you hear people saying, well, you know, we're much more concerned with, you know, sexual identity, with, with global warming, with, you know, uh, uh, you know, international currencies. I mean, there's any number of issues that are far more important than this thing about English and French. And what, what comes across quite clearly is that in, uh, in 2021, Anglos for the most part are bilingual. No, that's not a problem. They, they can speak French. Um, Allophones, in general, speak three languages. You know, they, they've learned English, they've learned French, mm -hmm. they've learned their mother tongue, maybe other languages. So they're, they're, the, the language is not an issue. You know, they can speak French, they can work in French. There are things they need to, to get beyond that. And so the, the, the sort of sad irony that there are still people saying all of you Anglos as if you know, we're all wasps from Britain. It's insane because you know, it has no connection with the lived reality of these people, which is why their identity and their sense of belonging is so twisted. I mean, I just, I just want to make one more point because back in, back in the 80s, I mean, I, I arrived here in 1980, um, and I might talk about that in a minute, but, but back in the 80s, the anti-Anglo antagonism was so intense that people did not want to identify as being an Anglo. Uh, so they'd say, well, you know, I'm a, I, I'm a Scottish Quebecer, or I'm an Irish, or I'm a Jewish, or, I, or I'm a Greek or Italian. Nobody wanted to identify as being an English-speaking Quebecer because the brand was so toxic. And there was a study done in 1989 of, of writers. So these are people who write for a living in English, living in Quebec. Only one of them would identify as an Anglo-Quebecois. The others were all some hybrid, some hyphenated, something else. So this, this context of, of, of this sort of nasty British history that people don't want to identify with, so they don't have a positive history to identify with. And when the British arrived in Quebec in 1760, Montreal was barely a village. What we have here has been built by wave upon wave of immigrants. And that, if there's any message I would like to get through this, it's about that collaborative process. It's, it, I mean, we're not saying that we did more, we're better. It's not like the, the immigrants and the Anglos were better than the Francophones. No, I mean, it's like, if you go back prior to the, um, the, the traumatic years of the 70s through to the 90s, you know, people in general got along pretty well, and then they did the best they could to build this place. And that's an important sort of common, in a sense of united history that we could be teaching in schools and would give us a shared sense of identity and accomplishment. It's, uh, it's almost as though, it's, almost as though it's, it's a chosen narrative, right? You, you can choose which narrative you want to you wanna present, but it, it's so obvious that 
this place, this, this, this city, this, this province that we're living in has not been built by one community. We can't, even, we can't even track down one community to a certain neighborhood, let alone a street. You know what I mean? So we can't, under any certainty, say that this place belongs to one, one group of people, one community of people. And that's just, that's just it, right? How many, how many people are running for, for mayor uh, that are a person of color yeah. this year, right? That is changed every year and it's continuing to change because the representation in this province is changing mm-hmm. it's and it's going to keep changing mm-hmm. and the mosaic is going to keep breaking down mm-hmm. into smaller and smaller mm-hmm. segments well i'd like to talk about you know the current environment because most of your listeners are are you know interested in that but i i just like to say a couple of words in defense of our francophone neighbors mm-hmm. um in the year of the conquest 1759 in quebec city 1760 montreal there was about 90,000 uh, French speakers in Nouvelle France. They were surrounded by about 2 million um, English speakers in, in um, British North America. So they were outnumbered, and they felt threatened. And they felt threatened through all of those years, and rightly so. And as British speakers arrived, and in the early days they were mostly from the British Empire, so they were, they were British, Scottish, Irish, which is why and one of the things that I, one of the questions I want to ask in the documentary version mm-hmm. of, of Waves of Change is, you know, why, why do you think that the coat of arms of Montreal has four flowers and three of them represent English-speaking communities? Well, at one point, Eng- Montreal was more than 50% English speakers. So there was a real th- sense of threat and that we're eventually going to be swamped by these English speakers. And in um, the years of the quiet not-so-quiet revolution, <laughs> but, you know, what followed was the FLQ crisis, which is hundreds of bombings and bank robberies and kidnappings. But there, there are two things emerged from that. One is that the public language of Quebec was not French. You know, it was not the language of work. If you look at photographs of Montreal going back to the early part of the 20th century, even the municipal signs are almost entirely in English. You know, it was quite scandalous. So there was a legitimate claim from the French-speaking majority that they should be able to speak French in their own language. Now, zipping forward to where we are today, according to the last census, 95.3% of Quebecers or Quebecers can speak, can understand French. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, how you define understand French is is uh, debatable, but but the progress that has been made is enormous. You know, so the French is no longer threatened on a day-to-day basis for most people living here. Mm-hmm. The other important point was that a guy named uh, François Vaillancourt did some studies into um, salaries earned, and he found in 1971, you know, right after the FLQ crisis, just before the Parti Québécois was elected, so an v- extremely volatile moment in history, he found that a unilingual Anglophone could earn significantly more than a francophone in Quebec. Now that that was just tinder for for the explosion. Mm -hmm. And so these two factors combined that you could live in Quebec, speak only English, and earn more money than the francophone majority doing so was a serious problem that needed to be corrected. So I, I, I think we need to understand that and we need to respect why all of that hostility and that anger that was somehow, you know, simplified into the idea of this British waspy, you know, invader mm-hmm. that, is, that is dominating our country. Forty years later, François Vaillancourt continues to look into salaries, and in 2011, he found that a unilingual francophone earns significantly more than a bilingual anglophone, and a lot more than a bilingual, presumably trilingual allophone. So the, the, the scale has tipped in the opposite direction, but nobody talks about that. You know, so so the, the, the historical problems have kind of been fixed. Now we're talking about different problems, like mm-hmm. bonjour, hi, you know? Yeah. It's, I feel like these problems are going to continue to get more and more dynamic. And, but what that means for generations to come, it's, it's sad because I, I, I've heard a lot of discourse. I, I, when I went to school at Dawson College, there was a lot of discourse amongst the English speaking community there that they don't want to stay in Quebec because they keep feeling like they're being pushed out and so now these problems and dynamics are changing but what's going to be left in 10 years what history of these waves of immigrants that came here to build this city build this province what what history is going to remain of them once everybody's moved out and so I feel like it's a bit of a disservice 
towards the culture and the history and the heritage of Quebec to push out these communities understanding well that being a Quebecois can mean so many things and being an anglophone can mean so many things being an allophone can break can be broken down and mean so many things have so many faces it's 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 saddening because I've come a lot to love this province and through through traveling through it I often find um, bits of culture that it ha have been have been visible across the entire province acts of kindness acts of acts of service and warmth that paints a picture in my mind of a quebec that i see faith in i see hope for but that gets lost in these conversations of language that gets lost in these conversations of identity and gets lost in these conversations of belonging because everyone's trying to fight for their identity and their sense of belonging but if we understand that our identity and our sense of belonging is comes directly from the fact that we all have different identities. We can work together to build a, a better understanding of our history, a better understanding. And so I want to talk a bit more now about what were some of the conclusions that you guys found with the waves of change and maybe even about the documentary that you were talking about. Well, one of the conclusions was that on the ground in day-to-day -day life, the historical problems with language, with equity, from a French-English perspective, have been resolved. You know, the, the data shows that if somebody wants to work in French, they can work in French, and they can earn a decent salary. You know, so th those issues are not there. There is a moment, we're at a moment, we're at a juncture in history where somebody in a role of leadership, and if you get to speak to um, Premier Legault, you know, he's, he's the guy to do it, is to acknowledge the, the contribution of all of the people who've lived here. I mean, back in the um, tur turbulent years, I mean, something close to 500,000 people left. That's a lot of people. You know, that, that's a lot of people. Um, it's a tremendous loss to the economy, to the, to the society. Um, the current generation, your generation, these are people who can speak French. These are people who, who could make a tremendous contribution to, to Quebec. To lose another generation uh, who have made all of these efforts to become good citizens, to learn French, uh, to acquire higher levels of education, would be a phenomenal loss. So, I mean, historically, the, the excuse has been that Quebec feels like a threatened minority within North America. So they can't really acknowledge the place of other people. They're fighting for their own survival. The English-speaking community has felt like a threatened minority within Quebec, and then the Allophones felt like a threatened minority that was kind of ignored by both the Francophones and the Anglophones. So everybody's feeling like, a, like an insecure, uh, unloved, unwelcome, unappreciated group of people. And this is not a great situation for a positive, you know, life-affirming dialogue, you know. It's like, I'm just going to talk about me, and I don't care what you have to say. We should be at a moment in history where, where leadership, you know, the government, the uh, education department could say, you know, Francophones in Quebec are probably in the best shape they've been ever. You know, there's more prosperity, there's more wealth, there's more education, there's more all kinds of things. And this would be an ideal moment to sort of look back at history and acknowledge the fact that the people here chose to come here, mm -hmm. chose to remain here, chose to contribute their brains and their energy and their lives to Quebec, and we should acknowledge them and we should make them feel welcome. So. I do feel that we're at a moment in history where either something dramatic like that has to happen or there's going to be another gang of people departing, which would be a terrible loss. It would be. It would be because I feel like we're better together. And as, as, as cliche and as cheesy and as, uh, you know, in all the conversations I have had, there is a sense of hope that comes out of it. There's a sense of hope that there's great youth across this province that are doing great work that want to see great things happen for the people in this province and because of that it you know it gives you that sense of pride in quebec in itself it's it's something like hey i'm seeing this here i'm seeing this done in my neighborhood now i want to get up and do something you know something positive or i want to elevate their platform and i think that can continue to grow if we continue to contribute or invest our time in making our communities stronger and making our communities better and there's a lot of youth that are doing work like that but then it would be it would be absolutely disheartening to see communities and communities fall apart because people are leaving. No, I mean, the future always belongs to youth and depends on youth. So that, I, I'm really happy that you've invited me to participate in this podcast because I think the current generation uh, is well-equipped 
to play a, a, a very strong leadership role. But they need a bit of support and encouragement from the powers that be. Um, you know, I, I look at uh, my own kids, their friends. Um, you know, I work in the arts, so I work with a lot of young people. And there is this sense of collaboration. There is this sense of wanting to work together, of being willing to acknowledge the other, of being to, you know, sort of create safe places, almost to the point of, you know, <laughs> a cliche of creating safe places, but, but of respecting you know other people's diversity and and their and their and their uh, humanity and their contribution to society. So there there is a a very real chance that this generation and you know I, I see a lot of positive aspects in the francophone community because young francophones are learning English, speaking English in a way that um, their ancestors didn't. I mean I, I arrived. I mean I'm actually a first generation Quebecer, so I, you know I. <laughs> I, I arrived here. I grew up in Australia, actually. I mean, I was born in Canada, but my family moved there when I, when I started high school. Um, and when I left Australia, I thought I was going to Germany. I thought I was going to go to Berlin, which was really a cool, artistic city at the time. But I, but I, I arrived in, in Vancouver, and there was an ad for this brand new playwriting program at the National Theatre School. And I was kind of what I was interested in doing. So as I traveled across Canada visiting my relatives, I bought a little portable typewriter and I wrote this play and I left it in Montreal and then I phoned them at the end of the summer from Dublin and I was accepted. Wow. So, uh, you know, I, I, can, I can certainly remember that sense of, you know, what am I going to do with my life? And Quebec was an opportunity for me to lay down roots. And just in passing, if anybody's uncertain about their language skills, learning French was just so much easier than learning German, which is an <laughs> awfully difficult language to learn. So. You know, when I graduated from the National Theatre School, I, you know, I had nowhere to go. I wasn't, certainly wasn't going to go back to Australia. I didn't really have any connections here, <clears throat> but I, I started working with Playwrights Workshop Montreal, which was a, you know, a hangout place where everybody went. Quickly became the president of the board of Playwrights Workshop, and the artistic director at the time recognized that there was this sort of obsolete cultural organization called the Quebec Drama Festival. That had been producing an annual one-week festival back in the days when you know well-to-do people liked to get dressed up in costumes and pretend they were you know doing Shakespeare or something. It was it was really totally disconnected from young people wanting to work professionally. So you know we got the idea that if we um, took over the Quebec Drama Festival, we could make it into something more productive. So we did. You know we we elected ourselves to the board, took it over, changed the name to the Quebec Drama Federation. So that was my kind of first foray into community building. And of course, the Quebec Drama Federation is still around. So I was, I was you know, executive director there when I was still quite young. And then, because I had a bunch of friends who were writers, because I studied playwriting at the National Theatre School, they said, well, could you help us do something like that for the writing community? So through a fairly convoluted, uh, difficult process, we ended up creating the Quebec Writers' Federation. And I was the founding president. Oh, wow. So, you know, Elan was kind of a natural extension of all of that. You know, people kept saying, well, what about us? You know, the musicians and the painters, like, we don't have an organization. So, the idea of, of creating Elan was to create an umbrella group that could include everybody. And the two earlier organizations, the Quebec Drama Federation, there was a lot of trauma about changing it and taking it away from the old timers who had founded it. And, transforming the mandate. As there always are with every theater club ever. Theater's very emotional. We're very dramatic people. Very dramatic, <laughs> very dramatic. And, but um, by the time of the creation of Elan, it just seemed like the right thing to do at the right time. And it, it was a very positive and natural beginning. And you know, we didn't really have any money. Um, but we were aware of the fact that there was some kind of a renaissance going on. I mean, there had been a mass exodus during the 50s, 60s, 70s, even the 80s. But after the second referendum in 95, people were coming back, people were staying, you know. Um, and so we thought we could just help people get to know one another. So we did a, a project called Recognize, Recognizing Artists Enfin Visible, because people had been pretending that they didn't exist, that they'd been floating below the radar and disappearing. We thought it was time to change the stereotypes and, and recognize that there were artists. And we thought we'd get um, a few dozen, a few hundred names. And we asked people to submit the names of artists that they thought deserved to be recognized, that they deserved more recognition. Well, within a few weeks, we had 2,000 names. And you know, some of us had been working in, in, in the arts 
our entire lives, our entire adult lives, and go, well, who are these people? And we realized that you know, people in, 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 in visual arts might know other visual artists, but they didn't know dancers, and, and musicians didn't know theater people, and writers didn't know filmmakers, and people in, in NDG didn't know people in Rosemount, and people in Montreal didn't know people in Eastern Townships. So we just started doing schmoozers, which is a Yiddish word for, you know, sankaset, and we would just pick a bar and send out an invitation, and just connecting people. You know, just that process of bringing people together, getting them to know one another, making friends, working on projects together, it was tremendously empowering. So, you know, I, I think there's a real opportunity for, for, for this generation to, you know, build those networks. I mean, you have the, the entire social media. It's so much easier to build networks. You can con contact people instantly. And, and to build those communities of interest and to, you know, change some of the the narratives, you know, to, I mean, one of the things that we wanted to do was change the stereotype of the nasty Anglo. I mean, for, for years I worked as a, as a freelance writer on multimedia shows um, that were produced in Canada, the U.S., Europe, the Middle East. And, you know, I'd be writing the shows in English for the international market. The rest of the crew would be francophone. And, and at some point, we'd go for a drink in the evening and they'd start talking about les mots et anglais de Montréal, and they'd all trot out their favorite stories about oppression and offensive behavior. And, you know, after a while, I'd say, you know, come on, like, I'm an Anglo. Do you really think I'm like that? And they'd go, ben non, toi, t'es pas un vrai. And <laughs> that, that was kind of, you know, we were all, not, you know, we, there was always the acceptance of the, ex, of the exception to the rule, but the rule never changed. So part of what we tried to do was to change that perception of what is a typical Anglo. As you know, studying psychology, changing those stereotypes is virtually impossible. It's an extremely hard thing to do because the exceptions will always be exceptions. They will never change the rule. But a conscious attempt to say, to, to, to proudly say, you know, I am an English-speaking Quebecer. I am part of a community that has contributed to building this place. You know, we are proud to be here. We deserve to be recognized. You know, I think if you say those things loud enough and with a certain amount of confidence and often enough, it starts to have an impact. And so, you know, I, th I think your generation is in a position to, you know, to be proud. And, and, and if, if the kind of projects that I'm working on can provide the database to go, well, you know, we, we did contribute something, our parents, our grandparents, uh, we should be proud of this place. And we do have roots here. And we, we should try to stick it out and make, make, make a, a better world here. Mm -hmm, for sure. And I think these conversations need to continue to happen to be able to. And it, it, it seems like the more I have these conversations, the more I realize I'm only breaking like the the tip of the iceberg it's it's ev everything i i feel like i i find out and i learn and i'm like wow this is all so new i have a conversation with someone who's been doing uh work in the community for for years and it's, it seems like there's so much more to to learn about ourselves and our background and our and our history just by having these conversations so even if you can't break stereotypes you can br you can change the narrative as you were saying and i think changing the narrative is something we have to start doing and i think it it's empowering for me to see that the world I grew up in isn't the world that I'm living in now. And I'm seeing a lot of representation, like I spoke about earlier, in politics. And there's this huge wave of young politicians that are people of color that are driven and have their minds set on making a difference. And I think that's that's something that I, I you know... I, that's something that makes me proud to say, you know, I'm an English-speaking Quebecer. I belong here because now we're seeing, we're seeing ourselves on 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 poster boards, on street lamps. We're seeing we we're seeing our face. I just want to make one comment about that. I mean, the person who ends episode four of the Waves of Change arrived here from Singapore, and he says that you know after being kind of pushed aside and. Uh, uh, being denied opportunities of employment and all kinds of things. At one point, he started thinking about life as a dinner party, you know, and he was just going to crash the party. Mm -hmm. you, know, you bring a bottle of wine, you bring a plate of something, but if you're not around the table, you're not part of the conversation. And so I think that, just to follow up on what you were saying, it's important to be fairly assertive, polite, respectful, but to be assertive and say, you know, I'm part of this conversation, you know, I'm standing for election, you know, I'm going to be part of this committee, and get involved, because that's what makes a change.
So I just wanted to add that before I moved on. Get involved. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, you know what? A lot of the conclusions we've been reaching in the podcast is people saying, just do it. Our first, uh, the first episode I worked on, um, episode three, we spoke with Anne Lambert, who is also a part of the Quebec Writers Federation. I, I know Anne. I've known Anne for like 40 years. Yeah. I, <laughs> we had a terrific, terrific episode with her. And we were talking about some of the ways to motivate writers and artists in the province. And her conclusion was, just write. Just write, and that 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 piece of that piece of uh, advice can go a long way in so many different conversations. Just get involved. Just do it, and it's it's cliche, but it it is the ultimate piece of advice because once you commit and put your heart to something, there's nothing you can't achieve. And it's empowering. You don't have to wait for somebody to invite you. You don't have to wait to get through some process of selection. You just go out there and do it. Mm -hmm. And if you do it with enough passion and conviction, you will attract like-minded people and supporters and followers. And it's amazing what will happen if you just stick with it for a long enough time. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can actually change the world in at least some small way. Well, the main thing is not to lose hope, not to become discouraged, not to become cynical. You know, that, that's what kills people, it kills their souls. So, and, and, you, and you do that by surrounding yourself with positive people. You know, if you, what you, there will always be times when you personally are going through a dull period, you know, when you're feeling like, I'm just wasting my time, nothing will ever change. But in those moments, your friends who are on a higher level, they will bring you up, and then later on when they're down, you'll bring them up. So, you know, it's good to surround yourself by a circle of encouraging, positive friends to sort of help you along on the journey, because it's long, and it's difficult. And there are moments when you just feel like, man, I just, I just, so much work and so little result, like why am I wasting my time? Mm -hmm. So this, this, this idea, it reminded me back to that earlier comment we made about this idea of motivation and artists and how influence how influential art is to defining or forming this idea of what a province is what's our identity what's our mosaic really look like so the work you do with Elan i want to i want to talk a bit more about that but how influential do you think the arts are in creating this sense of identity here in Quebec well the arts i mean the arts encompass every form of storytelling, whether it's visual arts, poetry, or just plain narrative. I mean, uh, the, the power of the story is incredible. And so artists are, are one part storytellers, so they find a way of, of expressing uh, the thoughts, the ambitions, the hopes in a, in a powerful, dramatic manner. And they're a little bit prophets. You know, they have, they have sort of one foot in this sort of nebulous land that doesn't quite exist but is emerging. So I, I think artists sometimes are the first to have a sense of where things are going and they, they, they can either play the role of let's get there as fast as we can or they can say what is emerging here is not a good thing so we should maybe uh, avoid that. Um, but but the artists can play both of those roles of, of celebrating what exists and also giving some uh, insights into what's starting to, to emerge on the, uh, on the horizon. So artists play a tremendous role, and I, and I think that um, we don't often appreciate it. I mean, there was a great um, short uh, video came out a few years ago about the power of artists, and during the, the, uh, the video, every work of art, everything that was created by art was stripped out of the video, so the person ended up kind of sitting on a, on a rock you know, because everything from design, architecture, style, fashion, it, it's all art. It's all artists, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's vitally important. And, and, you know, sometimes we think about art as being something that's kind of elite, but it's not. I mean, art is the way we express our hopes and our dreams and our, and our memories and our thoughts, and that's what art is. It is quite literally how I see this province. It is quite literally how I see all these conversations that I had. Um, everyone that I've spoken to has whether they're from just a community organization that you know that helps with immigration work or to someone who has been the the, the founder or co-founder of eland quebec's writer federation you know what i mean everyone has presented a, an artistic side to them um and that has contributed to their conversation of their identity within this province so when i look at this province i see it as a mosaic not just because of the diversity of the people that we are here but because i see this province of a province of artists i feel like in some way that you know really influences how how we belong and the different communities that we're a part of so um 
I, I think the work that you do and the projects we've been speaking about, I think they're all terrific. And I'm really excited to see that documentary you were speaking about. And uh, I'm excited to see what goes on uh, from here. And uh, do you have any, any last words to say to the people or any? Yes, I just want to say one last word. Because one, one of the reasons that there was a, a major artistic renaissance in Quebec after the 95 referendum was because Quebec, and, and mostly the Francophone Quebec, has a, has a very high respect for the arts. Uh, funding for the arts in Quebec is much higher than in any other Canadian province, way higher than any part of the U.S., but not just funding. I mean, there's a respect for the arts. I mean, one of the things that I thought was very similar between Australia that I left behind and Quebec was this love of the arts. I mean, Australia is a, is a geographic island. Quebec was a linguistic island, but they love their novelists, their songwriters, their theater, their television. I mean, there was, a, there was this visceral connection with creators of art, storytellers, expressing the people. So Quebec has always had this, you know, real love of the arts. I mean, people used to say to me, well, how much money did you earn last year? And if I told them an honest answer, they'd go, well, why don't you either give up or, you know, go to New York or why are you hanging out here and you know, doing nothing? I never got that comment from Francophones. You know, the moment that they knew you were an artist, go, well, that's great. You know, there was a respect and appreciation of the arts. So that's one more thing that I think many of us have in common with our Francophone neighbors. I mean, there are just many, many links that join us, connect us, that are, uh, that, are, that are a shared part of our culture that we, we really appreciate most when we go outside of Quebec where things are different. It's mm -hmm. only when we come back here we realize, yeah, we have so much in common. It, and it's true. It, it's it's that, that Quebec warmth that I was talking to you about earlier when I traveled through the province. Um, when you do connect with people, when you do connect with Francophone, when they see that you're kind of trying, you know, my French, it's, it's, it's good. But it's terrible at the same time. I have a very thick accent when I speak because I speak four or five languages. So it's 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 yeah. difficult to present, you know, in that way. But still, there's that warmth. Still, there's that connection or, or appreciation. And in a lot of ways, it's it's something that I sometimes don't see in Montreal, but I see, you know, more deeply throughout the the rest of the province. So 100 um, percent, I think that connection I hope that can continue to be highlighted, and I hope we can continue to strengthen that connection. Well, then my last comment is, you know, I would just uh, follow up on your encouragement for your listeners to go and check out the Waves of Change uh, videos. The Waves of Change, Quebec.ca, pretty simple. Um, my coordinates are on the uh, webpage. If they want to contact me to talk about uh, the videos or about their own sense of identity and belonging, I'm always happy to talk. And we will have a feature-length documentary that has much more context behind it coming out uh, about February 2022. It's already scheduled to open the Hudson Film Festival in March 2022. Amazing. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I, I would love to go and attend the Hudson Film Festival. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for this super wonderful conversation. I've learned a lot and uh, I've been blown away and left speechless at many times. So I can imagine what our what our listeners are experiencing at home. Um, thank you, Guy. I, I really appreciate it. And thank you. It was great to be here. And hello, everybody out there. Goodbye. You made it to the end of the episode. Thank you so much. And a special thanks to Guy Rogers for coming on. And as always, all the resources that were mentioned in this episode will be in the description of this video on the Why for Why website. Next episode, we're going to be deepening this conversation by talking to Maria Castro from Voice of English Quebec, live from Quebec City. Well, the podcast was recorded live, so... I mean, anyways, it's going to be a great episode. Maria has done some great work around Quebec City, and she works directly with newcomers to the province of Quebec, helping them get the resources they need. And we're going to have an interesting conversation on the topic of culture shock and how our current Quebec culture affects the transition into becoming a Quebecer in 2021. It's going to be a super interesting conversation, and I'm very excited to have it there. But I won't keep you guys for much longer, so I will end it off introducing to you Alison May, today's musical artist. Allison and I ran a writer's workshop, and that writer's workshop was partnered with a consultation. It was actually really fun, we had a lot of great songs come out of it, and, and those workshop consultations are a great way to hear from you guys about the things you want to have addressed. So our next consultation slash workshop is with the Dirty Mirror Collective, a local Montreal-based initiative 
This will be taking place tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. The details for that are in the description below. Make sure to RSVP and you will be sent the monologues as well as the Zoom link for all of your workshop attending needs. Now that's enough of me. Let's listen to Allison May and her song, Darling. Thank you so much, Allison, for sharing your music on the podcast. Thank you to Canadian Heritage for supporting this podcast. And thank you to you for keeping these voices heard. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day, and I'll see you next time.